0: Good evening, and thanks for joining me for another look at 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 tonight. Uh, We'll take a couple of weeks to get through this chapter. Just as a reminder, last week we looked at chapter 8 in its entirety, and Paul talked about how... Uh, it's so easy for us as Christians. The, the default mode, you might say, of religious faith is to be very legalistic and to focus on rules, to focus on who's in and who's out based on these very, very minor issues. And that's, that's what Paul calls weak faith. And yet, even if you have gotten to the point of having strong faith, that doesn't mean that you look down on those who are still stuck in rules-based legalism, but instead you see them as brothers, as sisters. And so there are certain sacrifices that you have to make, certain freedoms that you as a Christian give up. Christ is freedom. Living in Jesus is freedom. You're free from the law. You're free from your old ways of sin. You're free from this idea that I have to live up to a certain standard or else God won't love me. And yet part of being a a follower of Jesus and being Christ-like is sacrificing some of those freedoms for the sake of unity within the body of Christ, and, and so chapter eight was, we looked at that in terms of a very specific uh, situation in the early church, which was meat that had been sacrificed possibly to idols. And we talked about some ways that, that we can apply that principle in regular life. Now in chapter nine, Paul starts to talk about himself and give himself as an example of, here's how I make this happen in my life. Here are the sacrifices that I am making as a follower of Jesus, And so as we approach this, let me just give you this little bit of introduction. I think, in my opinion, one of the biggest problems in the church today is that we practice a Christianity that is almost entirely focused on getting something from God. Now let me be clear, when you and I first come to Jesus, we do it for selfish reasons, don't we? We come to Jesus because we've come to realize that hell is real and we don't wanna go there. We've come to realize that our loved one who died in the Lord is in heaven and we wanna be reunited with them. Or we come to Jesus because we recognize I'm a sinner and I don't wanna go on living this way and only Jesus can change me. Those are all selfish reasons and yet our salvation is real. It's only after we come to Jesus, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me It's only after we come to Jesus, he starts to change us and we start to grow into desiring not just what Jesus can give us, but Jesus himself. And that's that sign that you're growing in Christian maturity when you just want him. Uh, The things he gives you are great, but you just want him. So when I let me go back to what I said a moment ago. I, I think, unfortunately, Christianity never gets beyond that initial point of, I want something, God can give it to me, therefore I'm coming to God for salvation. And so our whole Christian lives, we never progress to that point where we're chasing after God for his own sake. We're just people who want what God can give us. Uh, let me just give you an example. Uh, years ago, and and I don't even remember who said this, but there was a popular preacher, and I wrote this down, who was talking about Romans 8.28. And he said, Romans 8.28, which says, for God, uh, for all things work together for good, for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Uh, You and I look at that and we see, okay, what, what it means is there's nothing that happens in this world that thwarts God's plan. No matter whatever mistake you make, whatever tragedy occurs, God is gonna be able to weave that into his plan for your life and for the world around you. But this pastor took it further and he said it meant that God is never gonna tell you to do anything that isn't for your own good. Therefore, any desire in your heart, any, uh, any leading that you think might be the Holy Spirit, if it's not for your good, then it's not God speaking. Therefore, I can judge God's will based on what I think is good for me. And that is preposterous. That's not Christian faith. Think about all the times Jesus asked his disciples to do things that were not in their immediate best interest. Think about all the times God asked Jesus, his son, to do things that were definitely not in Christ's interest. All the prophets of the Old Testament and all the heroes of scripture. It, 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 it's a lie to say that everything we do for God will will be in our immediate best interest. It won't. It, it quite frankly won't. See, you contrast that with the biblical message of discipleship. You contrast that with what Paul said that we looked at last week in 1 Corinthians 8. Sometimes we're going to make some decisions that are not convenient for us or easy for us or good for us because we're putting someone else ahead of us, because we're more concerned with the unity of the church or because we're more concerned of with the, the witness of God's people than we are with our own immediate uh, desires being fulfilled. So Paul uses himself in chapter nine as an example of how to live out that principle. Let's look at verses one through 18. Starting with verse one, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? See, what is he saying there? When he calls himself an apostle, that's a word that needs to be defined. When I was growing up in the church, and many of you are probably the same, I used to hear the words disciple and apostle interchangeably. The 12 disciples were also the 12 apostles. And that's true to a certain extent, but the two words mean two different things. A disciple is anyone who chooses to follow a teacher. Uh, So Jesus had lots of disciples, but he only had 12 apostles. The 12 he called were his apostles and Paul. Remember when Judas was gone, Paul came in. So what does the word apostle mean? If disciple is someone who pledges themselves to follow a teacher, an apostle is someone who is sent out by that teacher. Apostle literally means sent one. So the reason Paul and and the other 11 are considered apostles is Jesus didn't just say, hey, follow me. He specifically said to those 12, you're going to be the ones who will lead my church into the next stage. I'm gonna place my power on you. You're gonna be the ones who will establish my church. So there were two things that made a person an apostle in the early church. And by the way, this was one of the ways that the early church knew which books of the Bible were actually scripture. There's our train, you can probably hear it. This is how they knew which books of the Bible. Perfect timing as always. Which books of the Bible were actually scripture and which were just books written by human beings. If it was written by an apostle and if it agreed with the, the teaching of the gospel that had been brought down from Jesus and the apostles, then it could be part of the scriptures. So what was an apostle? An apostle, there were two categ- two criteria. Number one, an apostle was someone who had seen Jesus in the flesh. You might look at Paul and say he didn't see Jesus in the flesh. He saw him on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appeared to him several other times in his life. So you had to have seen Jesus. That's according to Acts 1 And then according to 2 Corinthians twelve twelve, your apostleship was confirmed through signs and wonders. So those original apostles had the power when God conferred it upon them, when it was in God's will to heal the sick, even to raise the dead, to, to do works of miraculous power. So he, he identifies himself as an apostle. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And then in verse three, he says, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So what is Paul talking about? He He's not, he's not responding to criticism from the Corinthians. They're, they're not the ones saying Paul doesn't deserve any of these things. He's saying, as an apostle, I have a right to get paid for what I do. I have a right to ask for collection to be taken up by the church to compensate me for for the work that I'm doing so that I can give myself full time to this ministry. I also have the right to get married and to bring my wife and my kids along with me, which this is the only place in Scripture I know of that it indicates that Peter, that's Cephas, and the other apostles, they took their wives and, and families with them when they traveled. Paul doesn't do that. Barnabas doesn't do that. Paul, of course, wasn't married. We don't know about Barnabas. What is is the defense that Paul is making here? The defense is, and this is going to be counterintuitive, there were actually people who were critics of Paul who believed that because he didn't have a wife and because he didn't accept any payment for his services, that that made him a lesser apostle. You can sort of hear the argument. Well, Paul... Paul preaches for free. Nothing good comes for free. He must must be doing this because he knows he's not really legitimate. And Paul's point is, that's not the case at all. And he goes on to explain why he lived in that way, why Paul did not receive a salary or even a love offering from the churches. Verse 7, "'Who serves as a soldier at his own expense?' Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he certainly not speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? What he just, what he says there is, it's the Lord's plan. That the people who plant the gospel should get their living from the gospel, just like a farmer who plants seed in the field expects he's going to eat some of that crop when it comes in. Just like a a shepherd who shepherds sheep, he expects that eventually he's going to be able to eat some of that mutton. Um, and, And then he quotes from Deuteronomy when he says, do not muzzle out Do not muzzle the oxen when it treads out the grain. That was a part of the Israelite law that said, while your ox is pulling that threshing uh, instrument and there's grain at his feet, don't close his mouth so he can't eat some. I mean, you might think, okay, I want to save all that for me, but that's cruel to the ox. He's doing work. You need to at least let him receive a little bit of the reward. And in case you're offended on my behalf that the Bible just compared me to a smelly beast, well, let's remember that one of the most effective sermons in scriptural history was preached by a donkey. Uh, and that's, that's Balaam's donkey, by the way. So Paul's point is that it's God's plan that the people who preach the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Let me, let me go on. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of, go- of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? That's another example Paul gives. In the Old Testament law, when you brought your offering to the temple to be sacrificed, the priest and the workers in the temple got some of that meat for themselves. That was part of God's provision for them. The tithe that went to the temple helped to feed and clothe the priestly families and the Levites. Paul says, why should it change now that we're no longer under the temple, but we're under Jesus Christ? He says in verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And this is a beautiful precedent. This is this is a great, great principle. Uh, let me just say, as a, a, a vocational minister, and I've had other jobs in my life, but when I was uh, 23 years old was when I began my first ministry job. Uh, when I was 26 was when I began my first full-time ministry job. And I haven't had another kind of job since 26. Let me tell you, being able to support myself by doing gospel work, by serving the church, by serving God, is a tremendous gift. And I don't I don't take that for granted. You know, whenever I get discouraged, if if there are people who are critical of me or if I get down on myself or for whatever reason get discouraged, I have to remind myself jeff you get to do something you love and you get paid for it there are so few people in this world that can say that and it's not just the joy of it it's it's understanding that it enables me to do my job with all my heart and that's a gift i hope it's a gift to you as a church that i'm not having to go out and and work full time doing something else and then give you what little time is left I, i hope it's a blessing to you to have A full-time senior pastor, and in fact, a full staff of full-time ministers. But that's what the Lord intended—that those who make their living from the gospel, or those who spread the gospel, should make their living from the gospel. But notice what Paul says next, verse fifteen: "But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision." See, he's saying. I don't take money when I preach, and this letter that I'm writing is not a request for money from you. He says, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. What a weird thing to say. I want to be able to boast, Paul says. Don't you dare take it away from me. I'd rather die. What is he, what is he boasting in? Well, let's hear it. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul says, I don't boast about uh, the fact that I've spread the, the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, thats if I didn't do that, I, I'd be the saddest case on earth because that's my calling, that's my love, that's my passion. He says, what then is my reward? For if I, I'm sorry, back to verse 17. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is, in my, is my reward? So you're asking yourself, the, the Corinthians were, What is Paul talking about? What is the reward he gets for preaching the gospel? If he's not asking for money, what is it? He says that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul's reward is that he can present the gospel and get nothing back. Paul's reward is he knows he will never have to entertain the accusation, oh, Paul, you just do this for the money. But even more importantly, and I think this is the point, Paul's reward is he knows that a salary from his people, a request for help, for financial support from his people, will never get in the way of the gospel. No one will ever, ever say, I don't believe what this guy's saying. He's just out to get my money. And let's face it, isn't that one of the criticisms the church gets from skeptics today often is, I, I don't have any use for you Christians. You're just interested in money. You're just interested in building a bigger building. You're just interested in, in your pastor buying a, a sports car and a private jet. Uh, and, and we've earned that criticism with some financial mismanagement at times, some financial chicanery, and from not serving the community like we're supposed to, not taking the good news to them in a compelling way. Paul would never face that criticism. He faced other criticisms, but nobody ever accused him of putting money ahead of people or money ahead of God because he didn't take money. And so you have a paradox here. On the one hand, Paul's saying everybody who Spreads the gospel, who's called to spread the gospel as a living, as a vocation, they should get their living from the gospel so that they don't have to work. And on the other hand, Paul's saying, and yet I refuse that right because I want the right to be able to boast. (laughs) What he's saying is, I'm unique. My job is to take the gospel where it's never been preached before. Peter, The other apostles, they're preaching in mostly uh, territories where the gospel's been heard, where where Yahweh is known. And and so they take full advantage of their right to earn their living from the gospel. But I'm going into these Greek territories where no one's ever even heard of our God. I'm not going to let a, 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 a request for financial help Stop anybody from coming to hear the gospel from me so that they can be saved. Paul is a model for thousands and thousands of men and women today who are, at least in part, working a full-time job and then serving God vocationally. Their calling is the ministry. Their calling is to plant churches or their calling is to pastor or their calling is to work with the poor or with teenagers or with unwed mothers or whatever the case may be. Their call is missions in in, in a foreign context, for instance, but they're working a full-time job in addition to that ministry. And they're following the example of Paul there. And you might say, well, are those people uh, more worthy in God's eyes? Well, we'll we'll find out when we get to heaven. And, And I believe many of them are more worthy in God's eyes than someone like me who gets my money from a church, even though that's something that's commanded in scripture, even though that's not That that is something honorable and God honoring. So what do we take from this? And this is kind of a short Bible study uh, compared to my other ones, but there's two take home principles from this whole idea of giving up one's freedom for the sake of the gospel. And that is number one, our life must be consistent with our message. I think we all know that, but I don't think we put that into practice very often. See, Paul based his decision to refuse compensation completely on the idea that if I do this, it might prevent somebody from coming to know Christ. If I go into Lystra or Iconium or Derbe, and these are towns that Paul and Barnabas went to in their first missionary journey. And if the first thing I did when I got to those towns is, hey, everybody gather around. I'm going to tell you about this guy named Jesus. Now I'm, I'm passing the plate so you can contribute to my ministry. Well, that might have driven some people away and they might not have heard the gospel. Paul made a decision because he knew his lifestyle needed to give credibility to his message. And so he worked hard. He was a tent maker. He traveled from place to place. Wherever there were uh, conventions and games and assemblies being held, he had to be there to sell his tents. And that was hard work. Think about Daniel, just to go back into the Old Testament. Think about that story we looked at when we were in our series on Daniel this spring, how Daniel's enemies could find no reason to accuse him his very worst enemies examined his life and there was nothing they could bring before the king and say, look, Daniel cheated you or Daniel spoke against you. His credibility was such, his integrity was such that it didn't get in the way of his message. And that brings up the question for us that we ought to ask ourselves on a regular basis. Is there any inconsistency in me? Is there anything within me that gets in the way of somebody else hearing the Lord? I can remember in my first job out of college before I went off to seminary, my boss was not a a Christian. And I I still had a a problem with temper at times. And he saw me losing my temper a couple of times. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm I'm damaging my witness to this boss. I'm supposed to be a witness to him. And yet he sees me acting in an immature way. That's not going to help me. That's not going to help him come to know Christ and uh, I think all of us need to ask ourselves the question: What are the what are the inconsistencies in me that get in the way that in which my life is not consistent with the message that I claim to believe and that I should be spreading? Second. Second thing we see in this story, second take-home principle is serving God is sacrifice. You know, we sometimes say, yeah, serving Jesus is great. Every once in a while, we have to make a sacrifice here and there. Actually, serving God is sacrifice. Jesus said it all the time. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Consider the cost, Jesus said, before you say you'll follow me. Remember the guy coming up to him and saying, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. And he says, hey, remember, son of man has no place to lay his head. You sure you want to follow me? Are you sure you want to go where I'm going? Because it's going to make your life harder. So Paul gave up certain rights as a servant of Christ. What have you given up? What have you sacrificed? You see, your life, your your, your relationship with Jesus is not, a, not just about what he gives to you. In fact, I can say it more clearly than that. Your relationship with Jesus is more about what you give to him than about what he gives to you. Obviously, he gives you your salvation, something you cannot claim for yourself. But remember what he said. Everyone who seeks to save his own life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will gain it. See, the key to experiencing the real Christian life, this is what I meant to say, is not about what you gain. The the key is what you give away. It's like, here's the way I look at it. If you go get your taxes done by someone else, I have for the last uh, 20 years probably, on that day when you sit down with your accountant and they're going through itemized deductions and itemized gifts and they get to that point, point where they say, okay, do you have any charitable giving? If you have not given much to charity, you feel a sense of regret at that point, don't you? Uh, you might say to yourself, oh man, I was I was really planning to start tithing this year. I really wish I had because my charitable gifts are basically nothing. You're wishing you would have given more. Whereas ordinarily, on an ordinary day, you rejoice at everything you receive and you grieve at everything you have to give up. On tax day, it's the opposite. You hate to see that bottom line number, here's all your earnings, and you rejoice to see, oh, here's the things you gave to charity. Here are the things you gave to your church. Here's the things you gave away. And I think that's the way it's going to be on Judgment Day. On Judgment Day, we're going to look at everything God gave us. And we're going to regret everything we didn't give away. And I'm not just talking about finances. I'm talking about we're going to look through our lives and see, man, God blessed me with so many great relationships, with so many close friends, with mentors who poured into me, with, with family members that, uh, that, I was, that that kept me from being lonely and that gave me uh, people to, to belong to. What did I do with all that? I didn't give myself away to them like I should have. I, I should have been more committed to them. I should, have, I should have taken what they gave me and passed it along to others. I think on our judgment day, even though we're saved by grace, I think there's going to be a strong sense of regret for a lot of us, like tax day, where we're going to say, I wish I'd given more and taken less. See, we're free in Christ. We're free from oppression. We're free from fear. We're free from bondage. But what do we do with that freedom? That's the real question. Ask yourself those questions today. Is my life consistent with my message? And What am I sacrificing for the kingdom? I hope y'all have a great week. Uh, Love you, love being your pastor. It is the greatest privilege next to my wife and my kids that I have in this life. Can't wait to see you this weekend. Y'all have a great week.